So I saw a pretty fantastic short film this past week. The film was a conversation among two people that seemingly don't have anything in common, but both stand as stalwarts within their own industry. The conversation was between the late Eugene Peterson, who is a great theologian, uh, seminary professor, and prolific author, maybe most notably for the paraphrased version of Scripture called The Message, between Eugene Peterson and Bono. Bono is lead singer of U2. I would assume that you would know that. However, something striking and interesting about the beginning of this conversation uh, in concept and theory is that when Eugene Peterson was approached about having this conversation with Bono, Eugene Peterson had never heard of Bono. Of course, this is quite striking considering he's the lead singer of U2, and U2, I think, when we see when all is said and done, will go down in history as arguably one of the top five rock bands in the history of the world, close to, maybe not above, but close to the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, etc. And so it's fascinating to think about Eugene Peterson and Bono having a conversation, but you ask, what did they have a conversation about? And the answer is the Psalms. It's a 20-minute conversation on film with Eugene Peterson and Bono talking about the Psalms. Interestingly enough, as far as how this conversation got together, not only did Eugene Peterson need to learn who Bono was, and Bono brought Eugene Peterson and his wife to a concert or two, and he's fun. it's fun to hear Eugene Peterson talking about what that experience was like and what it was like to get to know Bono and start to appreciate him. And then they were talking about the filming of this and, and getting together, and the person that was reaching out to Eugene Peterson said, well, I don't really have time to get together and have this conversation because I'm busy working on this translation. And the person said, but it's Bono. And Eugene Peterson responded by saying, but it's Isaiah. <laughs> and I have a deadline that I have to meet. And translating Isaiah is not easy. Well, one thing led to another, and this really was kind of years in the making. They finally sat down at Eugene Peterson's beautiful home on a lake in Montana in 2016 and they met, and they talked about the Psalms, and it's incredible. The film's very well done. Uh, it's very striking. It, it points out some of the beauty uh, and the tension that exists in the Psalms, and you can only imagine what it must have been like uh, to be in Eugene Peterson's home. Only a handful of people were. His family was there, and the film crew was there, but there Bono and Eugene Peterson are sitting at Eugene Peterson's table overlooking this beautiful lake in Montana, and Bono is singing Psalm 23. Pretty amazing moment. Uh, kind of a, um, a thin place, if you will, where the veil between heaven and earth uh, gets thinner and thinner. Well, this, this film depicts a thin place as they talk about their love and appreciation for the Psalms, and as Bono reflects to Eugene how much he appreciated the translation, uh, Eugene Peterson said this about translating the Psalms. I got started translating the Psalms to try to get them to real to try to get people to realize praying wasn't being nice before God. The songs are not pretty. The Psalms are not nice, but they're honest. I think we're trying for honesty which is very, very hard in our culture. 
And then Bono goes on to say one of the problems that non-Christians have with Christians is they lack realism. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with John the Baptist in prison and Matthew 11 because it's something is very interesting and there's, we could talk about this for a long time and I won't. It's very interesting how the church, at least in broad evangelicalism today, so often is not reflective of the Bible. And one of the ways that Christians are not reflective of the Bible itself is when it comes to realism and when it comes to honesty. And Bono and Eugene Peterson were talking about this and on some level lamenting. It's a proper word for the Psalms if you're talking about the songs. They were lamenting that Christians don't really lament. That Christians are more plastic than they are real and how a world craves for people to be honest. Well, thankfully, the psalmist in Psalm 42 is very real. He is very honest. And what he puts before us this morning in this poem, in an overarching way, is we see him turning his longing into faith. Psalm 42 is the psalmist expressing his longing and turning with his longing, with his craving to faith in God. And of course, that's what we need to do as well. We need to take our longings. We need to take our cravings. We need to take our questions. And we need to turn with them to God. And in the midst of doing this, slowly but surely, just like this psalm shows us, we'll start to see by God's grace that our longings and our cravings in the midst of turmoil and could be turned into faith. This reflection in the Psalms is a mindful composition of prayer, if you will. It's an encouragement for us to be more in touch with our souls, to be more in touch with our emotions, to be more in touch with our feelings, not exclusively on their own, but to combine those as a whole person. And we'll look in just a moment. Even the psalmist reflects upon himself being a whole person. Holy longing, holy craving, holy expressing resolute faith in God. You see, the truth is this psalmist communicates something that is true about all human beings, and that is that we're hungry, and that we're longing, and that we're craving. The French mystic religious philosopher Simone Weil said, the danger is the soul should convince itself that, is, that it is not hungry. However, it can only do so by lying. The danger in life is the soul should convince itself that it is not hungry. She goes on to say, however, this can only be done by lying. And then, I don't think he's a mystic, and I'm pretty sure he's not a theologian, but nevertheless, Bruce Springsteen <laughs> understood this. When he's simply saying, everybody has a hungry heart. And that is what the psalmist is speaking to. The psalmist is speaking to his own hunger, his own longing, his own craving. But what I want us to see is the universality of longing and craving within our soul. That we all really do have a hungry heart. And we need to just concede that before we start to dissect this poem and reflect on it a little bit, we need to concede that we're not okay. 
Both Christians and non-Christians here this morning struggle with a similar thing, though it's manifested in different ways. It seems that Christians regularly are trying to convince ourselves and others that we're okay. That we're not falling apart. That we're not hungry. That we're not longing. We're good. I mean, it's all good. The problem with that is, number one, it's not true. And number two, it's not indicative of the Christian life. Nevertheless, Christians seemingly front that we're okay. Non-Christians, on the other hand, front the same thing, but for different reasons. It seems that those outside the boundaries of the Christian faith want to communicate, we're okay. I'm okay, apart from God. But the illusion that we're okay apart from God is only filled through seeking to find life and hope and to take our hunger and our craving to other gods that the Bible calls idols. Yet we're all in this same position, whether you're in a place of belief or unbelief, we all have to concede that we're hungry and that we're longing and that we're craving And that oftentimes we take that hunger and that longing outside of God, or we take that longing and that craving, and we suppress it even if we're in God. But what the psalmist does this morning is invites us and encourages us and maybe even commands us to take our craving and our longing and to take it to God where it can be found with faith. And I want us to look at three ways that we see the psalmist taking his longings and his cravings to resolute faith in God, as Derek Kidner said, we see this through his lament, and we see this through his plea, and we see this ultimately through the hope that he finds in God. First and foremost, and really concentrated at the beginning of the psalm, we see him lamenting. And a lament is, is simply expressing our feelings, and more specifically, expressing feelings of sadness within our soul, expressing sadness about ourselves, expressing sadness about others, lamenting about the world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Maybe lamenting about a circumstance that we're personally experiencing, lamenting, let's say, about the lack of proper and good health in our own lives, lamenting about relational strain and tension, lamenting that our children aren't who or what we hoped they would be as adults. There's so many things in our life that we can lament. And what our lamentation does is it makes us see that we're really thirsty. And that's what the psalmist talks about. He depicts himself analogously as one who is like a deer, a deer who longs. And our version tells us pants, right? This word, and this is what's great about poetry, right? The words themselves speak illustratively. But the deer pants for streams of water. And he says, my soul is just like this deer. I'm panting for streams of water. I'm thirsty. I'm craving. I'm longing. And instead of experiencing the refreshing streams that my soul longs for with my hunger, did you hear and see what he says that he does? He fills himself with his own tears. And once again, this is only poetry. Uh, Only an artist, only a lyric does this. Takes this idea of longing to be uh, quenched with streams of living water, as Psalm 1 
would say, and instead of being quenched with streams of living water, he's feeding himself on another kind of watery substance, his tears. And does that not just speak to us? It speaks to some of you I know specifically this morning. You would say you're in a season, you're in a day of your life where you are feeding not upon the streams that are refreshing you, but you're having to circumstantially eat your tears. And that's worth lamenting. And the psalmist laments this. In verse 2, the psalmist laments this, that he does this with his whole person. And in verse 4, we, we see this. I'll reread verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, as I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts of songs and praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for again, I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. It's his whole person that's calling out to God in hunger. It reminds us of the beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, this is what is true if you're a Christian. The Beatitudes is not a list of what to do, rather the Beatitudes of, is a list of what is true of those who follow Christ. And one of the things that is true of those who follow Christ is that they are hungry and that they are thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And there's something countercultural to that, right? The whole list of the Beatitudes is countercultural because, of course, who would want to be hungry? And who would want to be thirsty? Because it's synonymous with dependence. But that dependence is the very impetus of what provokes a relationship with God in the first place. Here's, we could simply state it like this. You don't know God if you're not hungry. You can't know God if you're not thirsty. But if you are hungry... And if you are thirsty, these are two things that are perfectly indicative of what it means to commune with God. His lament exemplifies his hunger and his thirstiness. It also exemplifies an important question, a question that is actually asked nine times in this psalm and the connected psalm that follows it, Psalm 43. Why? This should just liberate us, by the way. This should also testify to what we looked at two weeks ago with John the Baptist in prison in Matthew chapter 11. He begins by asking an important question with the word, are you who you say you are, Jesus? This is very similar to what the psalmist says. Why? I'm sure you could probably find this just by simply Googling. Um, how many times the word why is in the Psalms? It would be a lot. And that should be encouraging to us because we live lives that ask why. Why cancer? Why unbelief? Why no protection for the unborn? Why so mean in trying to protect the unborn? Why? I don't know what the whys are in your life, but we ask them, and the psalmist asks them as well. And one thing we can learn by way of application is simply this. We need to learn to lament. We need to embrace these feelings that are oftentimes uncomfortable and take them 
to God, not only in and of ourselves, but then the second point of application is we need to learn to lament with others. One author, Ken Geyer, who I love, and I bet you've never heard of, says, you can never really love someone until you know where they hurt. You can never really love someone until you know where they hurt. Well, the most characteristic thing of Christians is supposed to be love. Well, in order to love as Christians, we must know where people hurt. We must lament with them. So that's his lament, but his lament throughout this psalm progresses a little bit. There's a gradual progression. And let's just even be comforted by the fact that the progression is gradual, right? I don't know about you, but I'm never really who I want to be. And I have an idea of who I want to be. And I always seem so far from where I am and who I want to be. And so if there's any progress, boy, it seems gradual. And the psalmist reflects this even in this lyric. He gives heavy amount of time and words and weight to the lament. And then this lament starts to slowly progress throughout the song into a plea. First and foremost, it's a plea to God. Verse 7 says, deep calls to deep. I mean, is that descriptive? And then he goes on to say this, deep calls to deep, verse 7, at the roar of the waterfalls, at the roar of the breakers, at the roar of the waves. Is that what it says? It doesn't. Look at it. It says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. At the roar of your breakers. At your waves. So it's a plea to God recognizing something that's honestly very uncomfortable for us to recognize. That which he is experiencing, which is not joyous. The waterfalls, analogously, the breakers, the waves, are actually from God. And this is hard, but he's pleading with God as he finds himself in this foothold. I don't know how many of you have whitewater rafted, but I have done it pretty extensively, especially when I was in youth ministry in West Tennessee. We would, at least once a summer, bring a group over to the Ocoee River, and those are some of my favorite summer memories of rafting in the Ocoee River, which has world-class white water, pretty amazing right here in our own midst in this beautiful part of the country. But when you do this, um, you do it through an outfitter who's registered for uh, a number of different reasons, mainly because not only is it fun, but it's dangerous. And one of the primary things that they will communicate to you before you whitewater raft um, is, uh, and, and I think anyone would say this is the most important thing that's communicated to you is, if you fall out of the raft, you have to get in what they call swimmer's position. And not to go into great detail of what swimmer's position is, but it simply is summarized by getting your feet up and leaning on your back. Why? Because the worst thing that can happen to you in whitewater is what they call foot entrapment. And foot entrapment is when your feet are underwater and they get lodged in a rock and your foot is wedged in the rock and the waves are overcoming you and you can't recover. Well, it seems to me that the psalmist here is describing, spiritually speaking, foot entrapment. As he uses this watery image, he uses these watery images 
throughout the psalm as he talks about God's waves, his waterfalls, and his breakers overcoming him. But he pleads to God because he knows God's in control. And while this might be distressing, it's also comforting. And this really is helpful for us to ask because it really does beg the question, if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, why would he allow this to happen? And that would be a great time to ask and to use this word, why? And you know what the answer is? I don't know. But it's worth asking the question and pleading before God, why? And I'll simply ask this, and I don't know if this is true for everybody, but I think it's true for most, and I can personally say this is true for me. While it is distressing that God is the one who is in charge of the waterfalls, who is in charge of the breakers, who is in charge of the waves, who is in charge of the foot entrapment that I'm experiencing in my soul, while that's distressing, it's more distressing if he's not in charge. And there's something counterintuitively comforting about the fact that they're His waterfalls. They're His breakers. They're His waves. And you see this as the psalmist is pleading to God as he progresses away from lament and into a plea. But another thing I want us to consider from the psalm is not only the psalmist, not only do we see the psalmist pleading with God, but we see the psalmist doing something that we see throughout the psalms. And we'll see this, and I'll talk about this more throughout the summer, because this would be, by way of application, an overarching goal for us this summer as we see this repetitively in the psalms. He's not only pleading to God, but he's pleading to himself. He's talking to himself. He's pleading to his soul. Throughout the Psalms, and specifically in this Psalm, we see the psalmist listening to himself, but we also see the psalmist talking to himself. He's speaking words of truth to his soul. Tim Keller refers to this as self-communion. We need to practice self-communion. The truth is, there are voices in our head. And sometimes they're weird. And oftentimes they're disconcerting. But one thing that's universally true about all of us, the voices that are in our head are incessant. And another thing that's true probably about most of us on a daily basis, we just listen to them. But what the psalmist is telling us to do is to talk to them. To make a plea, not only to God, but to make a plea to our soul about the truth of who God is. Keller goes on to say, preach to your own heart rather than just listening to its foolish or panicky chatter. Preach to your own heart. The psalmist is preaching to his own heart here in Psalm 42. And you will see throughout the psalms, the more you read them, they literally address themselves. They, they say, hey, oh my soul, listen. And that's a pretty fantastic concept. So he moves from lament into a plea and then he ends with hope. And I want us to see this from verse 11. And then I'm actually going to conclude by reading Psalm 43, which all people that study this, that I looked at, and you even see evidence of it in the scriptures, would consider Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 to be a cohesive whole. In verse 11, we see this progression from the lament 
into the plea of God and the plea to his own soul, ending with hope. Ending with hope in the promises of God, ending in reflection upon going to the temple, going with God's people. And once again, another thing that we would just say by way of application, all of this is happening not in his own personal prayer journal. I think we tend to read the psalmist like that because we're American, because we live in the Western world, and because we're hyper-individualized. We just think, oh, how cool, someone in a cave somewhere found like David's journal, forgetting that this was the hymn book of God's Old Testament people. And that everything written in the Psalms was either written in or definitely intended for community. And the psalmist reflects upon the hope that he has in God as he reflects upon what? Worshiping God in community in the temple. Exactly what you're doing here this morning. So one thing would be what can help me move from lament and plea to hope, you're doing it. You're in the temple. You're in community. You're with others proclaiming this promise. And we'll close with verse 11 from Psalm 42, which you can follow along with. And then maybe you could just listen. Maybe even with your eyes closed. That seems artistic and poetic. To Psalm 43, which is just five verses. Hear these promises. Verse 11 of Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? See, the plea. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against the ungodly people. From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O my God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Pray with me. Father,